chapter 12 begins, it says now about that time. Most scholars feel this is around 44 AD, about 11 years or so after the crucifixion. And this is after Peter has come back to Jerusalem and reported what happened in the house of Cornelius And God had used Peter to open the door to the Gentiles. And the church in Jerusalem, as difficult as it is, is accepting that. And then Peter goes back to Jerusalem. Again, he must have stayed in Caesarea for a while because when he gets back to Jerusalem, they ask him about that immediately. And then there's a a prophet who enters the scene. We've had apostles, deacons, and then in chapter 12, we have prophets and elders that enter. The church is forming in different positions, and the church are uh, coming to the fore. And this prophet Agabus says there's going to be a great dearth in the land. And there was. It hit Jerusalem during those days and Caligula and uh, different Roman emperors during that era. And it says the Gentile churches took an offering and then they sent it to Jerusalem. Our last verse in chapter 12 says, which also they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul have come to Jerusalem. Remarkably, and it says, now about that time, as Barnabas and Saul are there in Jerusalem, first time Paul's been there in a long time, and it says, at that time, Herod, the king, now this is a grip of the second, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, imagine that, civil government being unfriendly to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So uh, it's about that time now, tells us this is Herod Agrippa II. His father, Aristobulus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's in the family of the Herods. Herod the Great was the one who killed the babes in Bethlehem, the great builder in the day. I think he called himself Herod the Great because he was just a little short guy and had a bad attitude. And uh, he was extremely cruel. He killed a number of his wives and his sons because he was afraid they were going to take over the throne. And at the end of his life, and we'll talk about that, this week or the next time we get together, he uh, he is plagued with worms and he's eaten alive of worms. He dies in Tiberias and uh, was in terrible pain the last number of weeks. And he gave a command that when I die, there was something like, I forget how many thousand Jews he wanted slaughtered. He said, because they won't mourn for me, but they'll mourn for the Jews, you know. And of course, when he died, nobody... Nobody fulfilled that. And he had killed Aristobulus, his son, and then Agrippa went to Rome when he was a young boy, and he was raised there, and he was friends with Caligula and some of the other royalty in Rome that end up becoming emperors. 
And um, he was a, in financial ruin. He was actually in jail for a while. And when Caligula becomes the emperor, he, uh, he takes him out of prison, takes off his chains, we're told in tradition, and he makes him solid gold chains to match the ones, the iron chains he was bound in, and presents that to him and sends him back to this area of Israel where he becomes uh, the, the governor or the ruler over Syria and Galilee. And uh, as he is there, when the emperor changes, he was friends with Claudius as well, he makes him ruler over Judea, Galilee, Syria, the whole area. So he's really the first king, as it were, over this whole area since Herod the Great. And uh, he was an Idumean, so the Jews loved him. His mother had a Jewish background. And he would stay in Jerusalem more than Caesarea, more than anywhere else. And he sacrificed daily. He attached himself to the Jews. It was political. It wasn't religious. And, uh, and he wanted to curry favor. He liked the position that he was in. And uh, they bequeathed him with a right that only Roman emperors had. And it was called es gladi, which means you could use the sword to put somebody to death. And it seems at this point in time, he takes James, we're told, the brother of John, verse 2, that's the last time John is mentioned in the, in the book of Acts. Of course, he has a vast ministry after this, but it's the last time he's mentioned. He takes James and he puts him to death with a sword, which traditionally would be, in the church fathers say, he was decapitated, cut his head off. And it becomes an incredible chapter of conflict, of different ideas, because we're going to look at, you know, James is beheaded, um, Peter is rescued, uh, the, the church in Jerusalem is praying over all of that. Uh, it's a very difficult time when there's famine in the land, when there is a hostile religious leadership that is really just tired of now the church. They hadn't been that antagonistic before. And there is now a ruler in step with them who wants to curry their favor. So he takes James and he executes them. And this is the time of the Passover. This, this is an important time. It's, in fact, it uses the word Easter here in the King James. The Greek is Passover. It's the only time in the King James it uses the word Easter. Uh, the idea is this was a feast both of the Jews and of the Christians. There's all kinds of emotions attached to it. And James is put to death. So for the church, it's kind of like rut row, you know, what is going on now? Where are we now? What is happening? You know, Lord, what are you doing? This doesn't seem fair. I mean, this is Peter, James, and John. Lord, he was in the house of Jairus when you raised his daughter from the dead. He was on a mount of transfiguration and saw you there with Moses and Elijah. This is James, Lord. This is one of the sons of thunder. You know, this is, this is the one that was in the garden of, of Gethsemane with you that went closer and heard you say, Abba, Father. 
And he's dead. He's the first apostle to be martyred. He's just cut off by this cruel, savvy, political, slick guy. You, you just allow that? What's the deal? And, and sometimes I think, you know, what do we do with that? Because for you and I, we're studying the book tonight, the chapter, but there were real people involved in all of these things, real feelings, real emotions, a real sense of maybe betrayal from the Lord, a real sense of God. I, it's a scary because I don't know what you're doing. How do I proceed? What do I do here? And the, that was, this is all very real, as Luke records, and uh, no doubt interviewed so many of these and talked with them. So this Herod, Agrippa II, reaches out, and then he takes hold of James, it tells us here, and he's vexing the church now, and the, the Jews are rejoicing in that. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And again, that's very difficult because you and I, we all know people. Lord, why would you take that person? Lord, that person was affecting people. He was, you know, serving you. He was, or she was, you know, just an influence. Lord, this doesn't seem right. Why, why, I don't understand. Why would you do this? You know, I think Isaiah tells us something amazing in chapter 57. You don't have to turn. He says this, The righteous perishes, and no man lays it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous man is taken away from the evil to come. It says here, that the Lord takes a righteous people, and the, and the Hebrew word take is to take unto oneself, to gather. And it says, when righteous men die and merciful men perish, nobody lays it to heart. It just doesn't seem right. But it says there is a wisdom behind that that supersedes all of our sense of, of wisdom and what's right, and the Lord is able to look at a life and then gather that life to himself. Gather that individual into his arms to take him or her because he knows there's a greater evil to come. And because he's merciful and he would spare that person of that greater evil, sometimes he will do that. And he walked with James. He loved James, you know. He named them Bo and Jerry's, one of the sons of thunder, you know. He, he knew these boys probably when he grew up. They had fished together on the, you know, they were in the Sea of Galilee, and he was in the area. He probably knew of them, you know. They had a successful fishing business. They knew the high priest. And all of a sudden, this young man, sometimes it's an older man, sometimes it's a child, sometimes it's a mom or a grandma or a daughter, taken. And it's so easy for us as praying Christians, worshiping Christians, Christians who study the Scripture to say, why, Lord? This kind of crimps my faith a little bit here, my style. What is, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And, and Isaiah says sometimes that happens. 
Good people, righteous people, merciful people are taken, but nobody lays at the heart that the Lord is the one who can see down the line. And what he's doing is actually merciful because he's sparing them from some greater evil that would come. It leaves us broken on our end. You know, for our father, all of a sudden, again, there's a seat at the table that's full. It's been empty. And he's rejoicing. The family is gathering slowly. On our end, there's an empty seat at the table. And it's hurtful. You know, and and for you and I, so often when a loved one goes to be with the Lord, it isn't that we doubt. It isn't that we don't believe. You know, it's just that it hurts. There's just no way around that. When my dad dies, the hardest I ever cried in my life. It's not like I didn't doubt where he was. It isn't that, you know, I, I was crying because I didn't think he was heaven. I knew what happened, but it just hurt. It hurt. And Isaiah says there are times when the Lord does it, and it's hard. You know, people have a hard time laying that to heart, that God has gathered something. It's not just taken them away from us. He's gathered them to himself because he's saving them some greater evil to come. It says, he shall enter into peace. They shall rest upon their beds. I like that. Psalm 149 talks about that. Each one walking in his uprightness. And I think probably for a lot of believers, there's a struggle here as James, one of the pillars of the church, we're told, is all of a sudden taken and he's gone. And because he, this is a grip it now, because he, he <clears throat> saw that it pleased the Jews, typical politician, he proceeded further to take Peter also. So James dead, Peter in prison, it's Easter, Herod is vexing the church. This is kind of a bummer. All of these pieces don't go together. And they're thinking, Pete, now it's Peter? You know, this, these are, these are the, those that walked with you, Lord. These are, we depend on them in so many ways. He took Peter also, and it says, Then were the days of unleavened bread. So, so many memories. I mean, Peter and John had gone. Jesus had sent them to prepare a place for the Passover. The, the, you know, it was only 11 years before this. They sat at the table with him. You know, there was unleavened bread at the table. And, uh, and all of a sudden it seems so different. Now things have changed now. And Peter now is taken. And it says, these were the days of unleavened bread. So this goes on for a week when you put the feast together uh, from Passover through unleavened bread. It says, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him Intending, this was his intention, that after Easter, it's Passover in the Greek, after Easter, to bring him forth to the people. So Agrippa's plan, he takes him, puts him in prison, the 
population of Jerusalem swells from 100,000, 150,000 to near a million at Passover. He doesn't want to start something then. He doesn't know it's going to blow up in his face. He doesn't want to be in trouble with Rome. Still wants to please the Jews. So he takes he takes Peter and he puts him in prison, figuring I'll do this after the holidays. Like Caiaphas, we hear in John 11, he, they want to put Jesus to death, but he said not during the feast because he feared the people. So when he takes Peter in, he puts these four quaternions on him. Th these are teams of soldiers, four soldiers in a team. Usually these guys are like special ops. And the rule was during the day in the prison, you could have two of the soldiers standing outside the doors guarding the prisoner. Once darkness came, two of the soldiers were chained to the prisoner, one soldier chained to each arm, and then the other two soldiers standing outside because they never wanted to take a chance if somebody would fall asleep or, or somebody try to come and rescue someone at night. And there's a little uneasiness about Peter anyhow because he had put Peter and John in prison before this and an angel came and let them out. And they went looking for them in the prison and said, where are these guys? They said, oh, the guys you put in prison, they're out in the courtyard, they're preaching, you know. And so they want to make sure, this is not like the third time Peter's in prison in the book of Acts. You know, he wants to make sure this time nobody's getting away. Okay, so we got, we have the Lord taking James and we have Agrippa thinking he's really something. And he's battling the Lord and doesn't know it. So he takes Peter and he puts him with these quaternions, these soldiers, to keep him, intending after his intention, after the holiday, he's going to bring him forth to the people. No doubt he's, he's, he wants to put him to death like he did James. It says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. And here's the center of the chapter. But prayer. That's the center of the whole chapter. But prayer. James is dead. Peter's in prison. We find out that they're praying for him. And some of them must be saying, what's the use? We pray for James. He got his head chopped off. Why should we pray for Peter? Peter will be depressed if he hears we're praying for him. Such prayers, you know. It says Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer. Political pressure, people in authority that you don't have anything that you can bring to the table, injustice, things are wrong, but prayer. But prayer. You know, Ezekiel, you know, I sought for a man among them to make up the hedge, to stand in the gap before me that I might not destroy the land. And I found none. I'm ashamed, personally. Sought for a man among them. Not a church, not a movement, not a rock band, not an organization. I sought for a man. A man. To make up the hedge. To provide protection. To stand in the gap where the wall is broken down before me. That I might not destroy the land. And I found none, the Lord says. Interesting.
back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Here, these people are praying, and, and I'm thankful for that. They're there and they're in prayer. They're praying for him. Sometimes we wonder, what is our prayer accomplishing? The Lord says, a man who's doing it right can affect natural law and human government. But prayer was made, now it says, without ceasing. Now this is all week. Uh, without ceasing, when Jesus is described as praying in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, it says at one point he prayed more urgently. That's the only other time this phrase, without ceasing, is used in the New Testament. So there's an urgency to this. They're praying. They're praying for the whole week. You've got to give it to them. When's the last time you prayed for a week? Probably the last time I did. When's the last time we prayed for a whole week? Not only that, these quaterniums work through the night. During the day, they could take six-hour shifts. Once it was night, they took three-hour shifts because they wanted to fall asleep. And we kind of see here, look, when Peter is set free, it's the shift from three to six in the morning. And they're praying intently all through the night, if you can imagine. When was the last time we were at a prayer meeting going like that? The engine was burning, you know, the engine was burning. It says here, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, Herod really thinks he's something, when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now, it's interesting. Peter's asleep. There's a soldier chained on each side of him. And we're going to find as we look at this, it's, it's the last watch on the last night, the last three hours before the day dawns after a week when he's going to be put to death. And you're thinking, God, are you kidding me? Couldn't you have sent your angel in the beginning of the week? You really have to wait till the last day and then the last shift at the night when the day dawns is the day that he's going to bring them forth. This is the three to six shift and you wait till then. But the remarkable thing is Peter's sleeping. Peter's sleeping. You know, I think these are lessons from the lake. You know, Peter here sleeping. He remembers John Mark chapter 4, I believe, that when Jesus said, go over to the other side, and they were caught in the storm, and they were in the middle of the storm because they were obedient. You know, there's different kinds of storms that come. There's storms of instruction. There's storms of correction. Godless storms come in our lives for different reasons. And they were in the middle of a storm because they were 100% obedient. Get in the ship, go to the other side, go over the other side. He didn't say go under to the other side. He said get out, go over the other side. So they're in the storm, and it says they come, and Jesus is asleep on the oarsman's pillow. Peter grew up on that sea. He grew up in storms. He had never seen anything like that, and he finds his master sleeping. 
And of course, waked him up. Peter says, you don't care about us. He remembers saying things like that. But he had learned something about from on that lake, whatever the storm looks like. He's sleeping. Jesus slept. He remembers that in John 21, there when Jesus meets them on the lake again, he says, Peter, he said, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when thou art old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands and be led to a place you don't want to go. And Peter must be thinking, well, I ain't old. Like the rest of us, he's in denial, you know. I ain't old, and uh, this ain't crucifixion. This is going to be decapitation, so this can't be my on my schedule. Whatever, he's sleeping. Look, he's a guy that can sleep. He slept at Gethsemane when he should have stayed awake, right? Uh, he slept at the Mount Transfiguration when he should have stayed. But this is a good sleep now. This is faith sleep. You got a soldier chain on each arm. You ain't going to do nothing to me. And, and it's the night before his execution. He's sleeping. That's remarkable to me. It's remarkable. God had given him peace. People are praying. And Peter's resting. Look, there's all kinds of prisons. People are imprisoned to pornography, to drugs to depression, to bitterness. People are imprisoned in all different kinds of ways just because, you know, you're walking around. It doesn't mean that you're not bound some way or another. But it's the same. But prayer. But prayer. Something supernatural needs to be called in to the most brokenhearted and difficult of circumstances. And Peter has has learned that. He's already been set free by an angel. He's, He's learning. So here he is sleeping. It says, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. So are they laying in straw on the floor? Peter, we're going to find out, took his shoes off, took his cloak off. He couldn't put his PJs on because he's chained to a soldier on his side, couldn't get him over the soldier. But, you know, there must be a soldier sleeping on either side of him as well. This is a remarkable scene. And he's bound to these soldiers with two chains. And it says, and the keepers, other two soldiers, were before the door, kept the prison. So there's four of them, one chained to each arm. And two standing outside his prison door. And it says, and behold, I guess. Think about this. Behold. Now, it's not the angel. It's an angel of the Lord came upon him. And light shined in the prison. Now, this is no doubt the Antonio Fortress on the northern side of the Temple Mount. He's been there before, and he's asleep, and the angel comes. Now, I'm light-sensitive, you know. In the summertime, if it's light at 5.30, I have a hard time going back to sleep. We've got to pull my wife, pulls all the curtains, you know, just. Um, this light doesn't, you would think an angel shining light in a prison would wake you up, you know. Peter keeps snoring, 
And uh, remarkable, the light was important, no doubt. The, the cell was dark. He needed to see what he was doing. So this angel comes, and this light shines, it tells us, in the prison. And it says this, he smote Peter on the side. The, the patasso, the word, in the, the word in the Greek means a strong blow. It's going to tell us that the angel smote Agrippa and killed him. It's like the angel's like, <laughs> and then finally he goes wham, and he hits Peter. He says, "Get up! What is wrong with you? It's a strong blow." He's not a tap. Excuse me, Peter, would you wake up? It's <laughs> so interesting. He smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying. Arise quickly, Peter, wake up. I don't like to wake up that way, but when it's an angel. And look, his chains fell off from his hands. He's chained to a soldier on each side, and the chains fall off. These are Roman hoops around, you know, nobody else, they actually fell through his arm. They fell off fell off each arm. The soldiers ain't waking up because the angel knows what he's doing. The, the, the chains fall off each arm. The angel's telling him, look, get up, Peter. Let's go. The chains fall off. And the angel said to him, get dressed. Look what it says. Gird thyself. Get dressed. Put on your shoes. Bind on your sandals. Peter's thinking, this is a great dream. Okay, okay, I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to put on my sandals. So he did, the angel told him. And he said unto him, now get your garment, get your coat too, get your get your robe on. It's like dressing kids. You know, if you have little kids, you ever get them up, you know, and they stand like this. They, they're going like this. All right, put on your put on your pajamas. They're like this. you got to pull their arm through. Then you got to push their arm through the other side. And they're like, you know, this is almost like that kind of a scene. The angel said, Boom, he wakes him up. Come on, man, get up. Hurry up. Come on, we're rescuing you here. Would you please get dressed? Put your shoes on. Uh, like a little kid. Put your shoes on. Put your coat on, he says. And then follow me. And he went out and he followed him. Look what it says. He wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel. He thought it was a vision. He's thinking it's a dream. It says he didn't know it was reality. That's a guy who, who was in a deep sleep. You know, he didn't know it was real, it says. He didn't know it was reality. Peter's thinking, what a great dream. And they were, when they were past the first and second ward, so the two soldiers on, the either, on either side don't wake up. The chains fall off. They must have just walked through the door. It doesn't say the angel unlocked the prison door. They must have just walked through. And the guys outside, they're supposed to be standing and watch. They're like this too. They just, they just go out, remarkably. And it says they were past the first ward, then the second ward. And they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of its own accord, automate, where we get automatic. 
So the, this, the, in the Antonia Fortress, there was an iron gate that led into the temple area, they believe, you know, examining ruins. And there was another iron gate that led into the city. And that's where it says he's going into the city. And this, these are iron gate. The Romans made these. You didn't get in or out when the, when the Romans shut an iron gate. It says the gate opened up by itself. They're walking and go, and it just swings open by itself. The meter it still thinks it's a dream here, it's, it, it, remarkably. And it says, and they went out and they passed on through this one street. And at that point, forthwith, the angel departed from him. The angel left him. Now, is this one of the angels that rolled away the stone from the tomb? You know, are there are there angels that specialize in, you know, opening up things? And, you know, the angels were there that morning and said they rolled the stone away. You know, here's this angel, and he takes Peter, chains fall off. They go through the door. The guards are asleep. The, the iron door opens by itself. What an interesting circumstance. And when Peter was come to himself, <laughs> look, Peter comes to himself now. It means he realizes, he said, Now I know of a certainty, of a surety, that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me, literally to pluck me, is the Hebrew. He's plucked me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. James dies, gets put to death, and Peter gets delivered by an angel and plucked out of the hand of the same ruler. And it's, it's, it's this challenge of contrast, of conflicting positions and emotions. Why does one person... Now, Peter's going to minister between 20 and 30 more years after this, so he's not done with them, obviously. But, but why is it that one goes on and another one goes home, you know? Uh, it doesn't answer those questions for us here necessarily, but it does say to us here, God is sovereign. He's not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we don't see what's going on, there's angels involved. There's divine will involved. There's all kinds of things going on around us. And what can we do? But prayer. That's, that's the answer to this chapter. But prayer. He saw that he was delivered. He plucked me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews, which were becoming so hostile. And when he had considered the thing, he's thinking about it, his mind is blown now, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is John Mark, who's going to end up on a missionary journey, the one who would spend time with Peter and write the Gospel of Mark. He comes to the house of Mary, mother of John, whose surname is Mark. Look, where many were gathered together praying. So remarkably, they're intent. They're committed. I love that. They've been praying for days. And this is the last night of prayer before Peter's supposed to 
go into the hands of Herod. And this is the third watch, because right after this it says, and when morning was come, they found out Peter wasn't there. So this is, the, this is kind of, there's not another change of guards, because they'd have known right away Peter wasn't there. It's when the morning comes, they realize Peter isn't there. So this is the watch from 3 till 6 in the morning. And it says they're praying intently at that point in time. Now, here's an interesting thing. It tells us in the end of the chapter before this that it's Saul and Barnabas that bring the gift from the Gentiles to the Jewish church. Mark is Barnabas's nephew. Mary is his sister. So there's no doubt in this prayer meeting Saul and Barnabas are there as well, praying. No doubt Saul remembering years before this, after his conversion, Galatians 1.18 tells us he had spent several nights with Peter, talking, asking questions. And now he's part of this prayer meeting where James has been put to death. Peter is in prison. Paul's been praying with them, no doubt, for days. This is, these are the last hours of Peter's life. And Paul's going to write to us, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. He's going to tell us about that because no doubt, think what he's learning here, what he's watching as he sees this. And he was a Hellenist. He's completely familiar with all the structure of the Romans and the the soldiers and the whole deal, how it rolls out. So they're there praying in the house. I have no doubt that these two men had joined them. They're there as well, praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel, that's nice, isn't it? King James, I love the King James. A damsel hearkened, and came, her name was Rhoda. Makes me think of the TV show. Her name was Rhoda, which is Rose in the, in the vernacular. Rosie, okay? Rosie comes. She's a servant there, it seems, which would speak of Mary having some significant means of income. And when they hear this banging on the gate, they're probably thinking, is this, are the Romans here? Is this the, the temple, you know, police through the, the Sanhedrin that are here? All of a sudden, somebody's banging, interrupting the prayer meeting. You think the worst in some ways in that situation. And it says she went to see what was going on. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood outside. Rhoda, who was there? You'd never believe it, it's Peter. What are you talking about? And they're going to say, are you out of your mind? We're praying for him. Why would we be praying for him if he was standing at the gate? These men of faith praying, you know, that that Peter would get released. And they can't believe it's Peter because they're praying for Peter. And we prayed for James and he's dead. We're praying for Peter and we just figured it was going to go the same way. They said unto her, are you mad? Look at verse 15. But she constantly affirmed it was even so. 
And they said, it's his angel. Now, the, the current belief amongst the Jews, and it was through the Old Testament as well, is that we had guardian angels. And those angels at time could take on our appearance and our tonal quality of our voice. And, and they say, you're out of your mind, Rosie. So Peter's in prison. Why do you think we're praying? That's his angel. That wasn't Peter. But it says, Peter continued knocking. He's out there going, oi, vey, come on, I'm not the angel. Somebody let me in. Where's the angel when I need him? I got out of prison. I can't get into the prayer meeting. You know, somebody needs to open the door here and get me in. What is going on? And Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. God answers prayer? We thought we were praying because you're supposed to pray when these kinds of things happen. Look, you know, this is a remarkable chapter. Jesus makes sure that by his spirit he works through the quill of Luke and he puts all of this to the page for us. Look, where, where are we going in the culture we're in, the world we're in? How many of us, if things don't change, are we on that course? Will we end up in prison? Will we end up persecuted by the government? It's, it's looking that way. The world's not cozying up to us, that's for sure. And as we hear difficulties amongst our brethren, different things, will we pray? Will we gather? Could we pray through a night? Could we pray people coming in and out of the church for a number of days? And what would happen if we did? What would happen if we gathered and gathered and gathered and prayed for revival? How many would be set free from prisons that they're in? What does the Lord want each of us here tonight as individuals to take to themselves? That's a question for me and Jesus. But what I'm seeing clearly here is Herod's not in control. The grip is not in control. Heaven's running things. God gathered James because he probably saw some terrible thing that was going to happen to him. He had walked with James. He loved him. He said, I'm getting him out of there. He'll be safe with me. But Peter had more to do. So he sends an angel, says, wake him up, slap him around a little, get him dressed and get him out of there, you know. And the, and the remarkable thing, then Peter comes to the prayer meeting. He can't get in. They're astonished when they realize that their prayers actually accomplish something. I think we're that way sometimes as well. But he, beckoning to them with the hand to hold their peace. Some, they must have all start screaming. You know, and it's early in the morning. The neighbor would have woke all the neighbors. They must be all going, oh, yeah. And he goes, you know, beckoning to them with his hand to hold their peace. He declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. You can imagine, they're all sitting there with bated breath. They're listening. The angel came. This happened, and the chains fell off. And he said, now I want you to go show these things to James. Now this isn't the dead James. This is James, the brother of our Lord. In chapter 15, we're going to encounter him again, who seems to be a leading player, if not the leading player, in the church in Jerusalem. Go show these things to James and to the brethren. And then it just says this. It says, he departed and went to another place. Peter, kind of out of the book of Acts here. 
he departs and goes to another place. He's going to travel. He's going to be in so many different places. He's going to end up at the end of his life in the Mamertine dungeon with Paul in Rome. Um, he's going to be there for months. His wife is going to be there. He, he, Paul tells us he traveled with his wife. She must have left Jerusalem with him. How they left, you know, how early. It seems like they got out of town before the day broke. They wanted to get on their way. And the deal is we look here and we think, you know, I, I look at this and I think, there isn't, well, what if we'd have done this? What if we'd have done that? What if we'd have fasted for James? What if we'd have prayed harder? <clears throat> There's no secondary causes here. There's a great book by John R. McDuff. Years ago, I was reading Spurgeon in the 80s, and he said, if you want an hour of depth and spirituality, read McDuff. I thought, oh, if he said that, i got to find him. So I started collecting all of his stuff for 40 years and 30-some years now. And when I was reading him, he wrote one called Memoirs of Genezaret. And he talks about the Lord's ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And when he talked about Jairus' daughter and her death and the Lord calling her back, by the time I was done reading the chapter, tears were running down my face. This is, how is there this much life in this, still this guy's heart? And I saw in the beginning of the book then that he dedicated the book to his son, and I went and studied more and found out that his 10-year-old son had died. His wife died not long before that, that his 10-year-old son had died, 1870, I believe. And then he went and sat in the highlands of Scotland for 10 years. No iPhone, no iPads, no computers, uplink, no distractions. And he wrote a book called A Bow in the Clouds. You know, anybody who's bereaved when they get on the other side of loss is one of the most powerful things that I've ever read. And one of the first things he develops is there's no secondary causes. It's not like if I'd have got my kid to a doctor sooner, if I'd have done this, what if I'd have done that? What he said, no, there's, there's, there's no secondary causes. There's one cause. And it is him, and he's sovereign. And it's hard for us on this end sometimes to embrace that. Because we know him as our Savior, and he's been so gracious to us. And he loves us, and he cares for us. And then there are things that can happen that so seem to contradict his nature. And the way we've been able to rest in him. And McDuff said, but there are no secondary causes. There's only a single primary cause. And the Lord has his hand on the steering wheel. And in this chapter, it's speaking clearly to us about that. James is gone. Peter's plucked out of the same man's hand. And then Peter moves on, it says. He, 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 he moves on. And it says, now look, in verse 18, it says, Now, as it was day, the dawn comes now, there was no small stir among the soldiers. I guess not, which means there was only a big stir. When it says no small stir, it means it was a big deal. You know, there was no small stir. That's because Peter was sentenced to death. There's no small stir among the soldiers. What was become of Peter? Peter. 
They're saying, you, you, you were on the door. What do you mean I was on the door? You were chained to him in the shell. How do you get out? You know, is this Houdini in there? What do you mean? You know, just, you know. So these guys, no doubt, are going back and forth. And when Herod Agrippa had sought for him and found him not, they couldn't find Peter anywhere, he examined the keepers. And he commanded that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he abode there. There was the code of Justinian that the Romans had adopted, and it said this to any of their soldiers, their guards, if you're guarding someone and he gets away under your watch, you serve the sentence for the crime that he was sentenced to. And it says these soldiers... 16 of them, four fours, 16 of them. It wasn't their fault that Peter was in prison. It wasn't their fault that Peter was out of prison. They certainly worked for the wrong boss, as too many people do. And it says they're all put to death. That was Peter's sentence. It's a death sentence. They're all put to death. And then it says he went down from Judea, he goes north to Caesarea, but whenever you leave Jerusalem, you go down, as far as the Jews are concerned. It says, he goes down from Judea to Caesarea. We can finish this. And there abode. And Herod, Agrippa now, was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. There's something going on. There are ports in Tyre and Sidon. We remember that from Hiram in the Old Testament. A friend with David shipping things. They would bring them down to Joppa, the trees to build the temple and so forth. There's a famine, grain normally coming from Egypt. There was also a lot of grain that came from Israel. And there's some now tension between Agrippa, who's ruling that whole area, and those of Tyre and Sidon. Is it relative to this famine? We're, we're not sure, but there's trouble but they came with one accord to him, having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend. So they're savvy, too. They're working their way in. They get a guy on their side who's close to Herod Agrippa, desiring peace. The reason? Because their country was nourished by the king's country. So there's something here in the famine, and there's a difficulty and upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne. So this is the throne that's in contest with the real throne. And he made an oration unto them. Now Josephus tells us, because it's going to say here, they said, this is a god, that he had his clothing, his, his breast clothing woven out of silver. You can imagine how much that weighed. It was woven out of pure silver. And and he puts himself either the setting sun, the rising sun. The idea is shining on him. You can probably hardly look at it. Just he's glistening. He's 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 got this appearance, this royal apparel. He's on his throne and he made an oration, a speech. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of God, not of man. 
Whatever he said, whatever he did, and they, they're buttering him up too because they need his help. But he's standing there in his glistening clothing, and they said, "This is not the man, the voice of a man. This is the this is the voice of God." And immediately, there's no hesitation here. The angel of the Lord. I'm assuming it's the same one that smote Peter. It's the same word smote there. The angel of the Lord smote him. Because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms, and he gave up the ghost. We're told by historians he died four days later. He was in agony the whole time, eaten up of worms. This is just for your own information. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of Alexander the Great's four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, you know, you go through them, ruled over that part of the world, and he was so cruel to the Jews, he sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, and he made a, like, ten-foot-wide skillet, and he fried Jews alive on the skillet. And he killed so many... But it tells us right in the middle of when he was doing something blasphemous, he fell down and he was eaten up of worms. Herod the Great killed the innocents. We talked about that already. Fell down, eaten up of worms. Feratima, queen of Cyrene, persecuted the church, hated them, elevated herself. Tremendous pain, falls down, eaten up of worms. Hermeneus, Roman governor, persecuting God's people, falls down, eaten up of worms. Galerius, Roman emperor, falls down, eaten up of worms. Philip II of Spain, hated the church, falls down, eaten up of worms. Is this a, is a, are you getting a mental picture here? This is great, you know? Are they crossing the border here? The Lord, when he talks about the blasphemous and so forth, when they go to hell, it says, There the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Coincidence is not a kosher word. All of these persecutors and haters of God's people. Now, now look. You're thinking, I know one or two people. I'd like to see them fall down and get. Don't don't do that. We're, you know, <laughs> don't do that. Because you know, no matter how rotten somebody is, I can't stand the thought of hell for somebody. That goes on forever and forever and ever. You know, Lord, freak them out, burn them up a little. But you know, don't don't send them there. Whatever you need to do. But he falls down. He's eaten up of worms. This picture. Now look in verse 24. But. This is forget all that, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So James is dead. Peter is plucked out of the hands of Herod, who thought he was in charge. Herod's dead, and the word of God is alive. The civil power, the governmental power, who still thinks it runs everything is not on the throne of the universe. And there are things we don't understand. There are good people that perish. We, we, we ask those questions. Why does that happen? But then there's other circumstances where somebody's just plucked out of the circumstance. 
And, and people are praying. Sometimes we wonder, what does that do? And we're like these guys. That can't be Peter. We're praying for him. He's in prison. When Peter's out there trying to get in, you know, to the prayer meeting. And, and then this guy who thought he was in charge falls down. He didn't give God, it says, the glory. They said, this, is God. this guy's God. Listen to his voice. Look at him glistening. And he didn't give God the glory. And he fell down. He was eaten up of worms. But... The word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul then returned from Jerusalem. What stories they came back with. And when they had fulfilled their ministry and they took with them John, whose surname is Mark, which is setting us up for the next chapter, which won't be next week. It'll be the week after if the Lord tarries. And I hope he doesn't. Um, so look, conflicting ideas. You go through this chapter the Lord recorded it. He gave it to us. Um, praying. Well, why do we pray for one situation? And it just ends terribly, it seems. And we pray for another situation, and, and remarkable things happen. You know, because I know, and you know, and probably at times in my own life, I thought, what's, you know, people say, what's the use? Why should I pray? You know, I prayed for my, I prayed for my, my teenager. And they're out using heroin. I prayed for my mom. She died of cancer. Why should I pray? I really thought the Lord was confirming in my heart this was going to happen. Why should I? You know, and we can get in that place. We can't see the end. We can't see next week. We can't see next year. We can't see glory. He sees it all. And sometimes it seems like an exercise in frustration as we pray. And that's why we have to pray in faith. That's why we have to pray in faith. Peter watched Jesus agonize and say, well, not my will, let me done. Abba. He heard it. We, 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 we have it in Mark's gospel because he discipled Mark, Peter. The very words, Aramaic words that Jesus cried, Dad. You go to Israel today and you hear the little kids saying to their fathers, Abba, Abba, like your kids say, Daddy, Abba. Only in Mark's gospel we have it. Peter says we're there. We heard him say, Abba, why is this happening? And his prayers were not answered the way he had requested for them to be answered. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Praying is never to get our will done. It is to get his will done. And that's a wrestling place for us sometimes. It's a wrestling place. Because it says we should pray. We should bring our supplications before him. It says men ought always to pray and not to faint. It says we should cast all of our cares upon him. He beckons us to come and to pour out our hearts and our lives before him. But he is still sovereign. And... Uh, And there are wrestlings. So he records this, you know, and I sit with it and look at it and he put it before us and says, I'm, I'm God all through this. I'm sovereign all through this. I'm as loving in the beginning as I am in the end of this. I'm as in charge of government in the beginning when the sword is in Herod's hand as I am at the end when the worms are eating him up. 
from God in all of those places. And it can give you a sense kind of like helplessness or, you know, vulnerability. You know, again, I remember the night that my son almost died. And and you come away from that, you think you reserve the right, you're sovereign, to put your hand on the most precious thing in my life. That's really sobering, Lord. But it could never happen without a purpose, Lord. It could never, you know, the end from the beginning. It just leaves me incredibly vulnerable. But I'm going to let you be God. It's just so much easier. It's just so much easier. With all, you know, you're going to wrestle anyway. Just let him be God. Let him do that. And he, and he paints the picture for us here, I think, in a wonderful way. So let's um, let's end with some worship. Let me pray for you uh, as we do that. Just let's bow our hearts. Lord, we, we come before you, Lord. And we put this picture, Lord, you... You're an artist beyond our comprehension, Lord. You paint this picture, Lord, with with the most human of details. People exercising spiritual things and then not even thinking what they're exercising really is making a difference. And things that are hard, like James, and things that are remarkable, like Peter, and things that are just, like Agrippa. And Lord, that's going on all around us. We're aware of that. Right here, Lord, there are angels present, Lord. You keep us, you watch us, Lord. We know that one day, as soon as we step to the other side, we will be amazed, Lord. You said your angels are sent forth ministering spirits to minister unto the heirs of salvation. Lord, help us believe that in the days we're in. We don't know, Lord, if we're going to bang head with civil authorities. We don't know if we're going to be chained somewhere between something, Lord, or maybe, Lord, there are those here this evening that feel bound by one circumstance or another. Lord, great bumper sticker, Lord, but prayer. Lord, it would be good for me while I'm driving. Let it be on our heart, Lord, but prayer. It stands in the face of everything, good and bad, just and unjust, under your control and things that seem out of control. But prayer navigates all of that. Help us, Lord. Like your disciples said, teach us to be praying. Teach us to pray, Lord. We put these things before you, Lord. I think anyone in this room this evening, brokenhearted, the holidays are upon us like Passover was upon them. So many fond memories, the Last Supper, Lord. Growing up their whole lives with the Passover every year, the family, Lord, the Seder, Lord. There are those here, Lord, tonight that uh, memories seem broken, Lord. Seems that season when things should be precious to them, and, and there's heartache, Lord. We lift them to you, Lord. Those, Lord, 
in some type of prison, Lord. They're incarcerated by circumstances, by feelings, by bitterness, by temptation, Lord. But prayer, Lord, set them free, Lord. Right now, Lord, move among us and as we sing your praise, Lord. And Lord, remind us that every ruler that tries to be God is going to fade away to worm food, Lord. Help us remember that, Lord, that you are on the throne. And whatever seems unjust around us is by your permissive will, Lord. Help us to navigate that, Lord. We're children, Lord. And only as you measure your grace to us can we do these things. So, Lord, every broken heart here, every wound, Lord, every difficulty, Lord, we lift it to you. We trust you to move among us, Lord, as we lift our voices in praise. Lord, we pray that would bless you, Lord, and that you would pour your spirit out upon us. Lord, we look to you and we pray in your name. Amen.